but I want, I want to start in the Word and then move out of the Word into ministry in the evening. Often I'll start in ministry and then move into the Word, but it, it just depends how, how the Lord leads us. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Ezra, the book of Ezra, chapter 1. It's interesting, I was, it was Friday night, this last Friday night, and um, it was about 11.30, and I'd just gone to bed and was looking forward to having a nice sleep before the Saturday conference. And as, as my head hit the pillow, I felt the Lord begin to speak to me, and he said, read Ezra. And I was like, yeah, all right, tomorrow. But I felt the impression was, no, read Ezra now. So I'm like, well, I left my glasses downstairs in the office. Why does the Lord always, you know, I just put my head on the pillow. I was downstairs 15 minutes earlier. Anyway, so my, my glasses, I left my glasses downstairs. And he says, what about your iPhone next to you? It's got the Bible on it. So I put my headphones on, got it to Ezra, and began to listen to Ezra. And the Holy Spirit began to work in me, and it was as if I'd never read or listened to Ezra before in my life. I was hearing things and seeing things in the Spirit as I was listening to this book that I'd never thought of, never saw. And I realized that the Holy Spirit was doing a prophetic work within this book, not just in my life, but I believe that I've got something to share for your life, and I believe for the church here at KT and the wider body of Christ. And so I'm going to begin in Ezra tonight, and we'll minister out of this, we'll just see how far we go, and then I'm, I'm going to come back to it, because it's, it's an amazing book, because es, es, Ezra is all about restoration, all about restoration. Um, it's about the children of Israel who had been in Babylon for 70 years. They'd been in Babylonian captivity. And then God works by His Spirit to return them, to call them back to the altar and the temple and to bring a full restoration back into the nation of Israel. But very few of them responded to God's call to return. It was only a remnant that returned. The majority of, of, of the Jews from, from the from the point of the Babylonian captivity, from that point, more Jews lived outside Israel than in Israel for the rest of history, including today. And uh, many, many of the Jews, during the period where there were the deportations to Babylon, many of them left and went to Egypt. And those that were in Babylon after 70 years, uh, they were quite happy there. They were prospering there. And for centuries and centuries and centuries, until the Islamic persecution, there was a large number of Jewish people in the area of Babylon, Iran, Iraq area. There was a large, large number of Jewish people there because they never returned after the 70 years. So this is the story of the few. The few that God stirred their heart up and returned to Israel. It's the story of how they built the altar. It's the story of how they built the temple. And it's fascinating. I'm just going to show, I just want to give you a show of where we're going to be going 
the next couple of evenings or so. It's fascinating. They build the altar, and then they begin to build the temple. And then in chapter 4, you have all this opposition to the temple. And as I read it, I thought to myself, it's amazing. Because I, I, used, I was thinking to myself, Do you know, all this political opposition we have to the gospel. You know, we preach the gospel, we have our standards of morals, and we have all this pressure about Christians aren't allowed to teach about this, about sexuality. Christians aren't allowed to teach about marriage. What are, who are these people? And all, all these barriers trying to stop the message out, and all these political pressures and media pressures. And then when I read chapter 4, I realized it was exactly the same in those days. That there was political pressures, there was, there was uh, op opponents trying to get the government to stop the work of God and succeeded for a while. There were letters by the opposers in Samaria. They sent letters up to the um, Assyrian Empire complaining about the Jews and what they were doing. And, and letters were going back and there was political lobbying and they had to stop for a while what God had called them to do. Uh, because they weren't allowed to do it. And they, had to, they, they really had to fight in the political arena. And we'll see that as we go through. They, they had to fight. They were slandered. Uh, all sorts of, of terrible, dark tricks were done by their, by their, their enemies to paint them into re rebellious people. And so not only was it just a question of following the Lord, of getting their hearts right, but they had to deal with the politics of the day and, and believe God in order to, to get the temple. And it's a wonderful thing to see because even when it looks like political opposition against the message of the church is prospering, God can turn it around. And one of the great things that I was thinking about when I was listening to Ezra on Friday night was how God is completely in control of all things and everybody all of the time. And how when it appears that it's all going wrong, God can turn it around in a moment of time. He can give favor in the midst of persecution. And then when they finally finish the temple, it's not the end. In fact, that's where we begin to see Ezra the priest comes. And Ezra comes in, and he comes in with this amazing holiness preaching. I mean, these people were already holy. Uh, they were the ones that decided to return from Babylon uh, after the 70 years to restore it. But Ezra comes in, and he takes the restoration to another level. I mean, if, if they were hardcore followers of Yahweh before Ezra returned, afterwards they were as sharp as a razor blade when it came to the things of God. And, he, and although they had left Babylon, when Ezra came, with all the great work that they had done, Babylon had yet to leave them. And Ezra came in and he dealt with the, the uh, false marriages that they'd had. And he read the word of God and he called them to a new level of obedience, which they followed. And so the book of Ezra is a wonderful History of the restoration. Of course, you read Ezra with Nehemiah, because Nehemiah is also involved in the restoration. There were different groups that came back over that, that period of time. So you read Ezra with Nehemiah, and uh, remember that during the period of Babylon captivity, you've got Daniel, haven't you? 
So Daniel was ministering during those 70 years in Babylon. Also Esther, you know, Queen Esther? That was during the 70 years in Babylon. So just to sort of give you a picture historically of what, of what we were talking about. And so I'm going to begin in Ezra because I believe that there is a, a pattern here of how God brings the restoration of his kingdom into backslidden nations and backslidden churches. And I do believe that God is looking for a, an Ezra generation, if I can put it like that. People that are going to depart from the Babylon. Uh, Luther, the great reformer, Luther, one of his greatest works was talking about the Babylonian captivity of the church. He used this phrase in the Reformation. And one of, one of his books was the Babylonian captivity in the church, of the church. And he spoke about how the excesses of the time in the Roman Catholic Church had for centuries kept God's people in captivity, kept them away from the word and the truth that sets them free, kept them away from the move of God, kept them away from their inheritance. And Luther looked at the Catholic Church of that time, of which he was a part, by the way, and he said, this is just like the time when the Israelites were judged and taken away from their promised land, their land of inheritance, and taken away into a strange land with a strange culture with different gods that were not the God of Israel. Let's uh, start in Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the, uh, sorry, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' house, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold, with goods and beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 of the vessels, 
All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought out of Babylonia to Jerusalem. So here we are. Here we have the call to restoration. God is calling the remnant in his church today, in this nation and across the world, but I'm talking about this nation today. He is calling the remnant of his church to restoration. You say the remnant of his church? What do you mean by that? Do you mean that some people in the church are saved and some people aren't? I'm not really speaking about that. I'm talking about the fact that there are many people in the church whose hearts are not being stirred for the restoration of God's work in this land. They're just happily going on, living in Babylon. Many of them are, um, are taking on Babylonian thoughts, Babylonian ways, and Babylonian morals, and, and they are very happy in a foreign land. But God, you see, this is Friday night. I had no intention of reading Ezra. God is calling out a remnant of fire-baptized Christians to restore the fortunes of the Lord in this land and in Europe. That's what he's doing. And, and, and if we hear the call, we are going to see great things in our lives. You know, right at the beginning, Ezra starts with prophecy. Look, in the first year, Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. God hadn't forgotten Jeremiah. Everybody else had. Yeah, looked, Jeremiah seemed to, seemed to have been a, a prophet that in many ways failed. It's like Colin, our senior minister, always says uh, he was one of the few prophets that never had one convert. Uh, even his secretary probably didn't believe. But he prophesied, and think about this, think about this. He prophesied that after 70 years, you can read it in the book of Jeremiah, after 70 years, the Jewish people would be restored from Babylon back to Israel. He prophesied it. Now, when he prophesied it, nobody believed it. Because he prophesied, you're going to come back. But at that time, the temple laid waste. Everything had been destroyed. They had been, ca been made captive by the Babylonians and were taken into captivity. That word by Jeremiah must have just felt or, or seemed so weak, so insipid, so void of power, promise, or hope. He's prophesied you're going to be back in 70 years, but the temple's been ransacked, the altar's been destroyed. The, the, the best of Israel has been taken into Babylonian captivity. The rest of Israel has been running off to Egypt, to Alexandria, to get away from it. And everybody seems to have departed. And the word, it, you'd almost laugh at the word. It seems so unbelievable. And you know, the word that it seems so in, inappropriate to prophesy restoration right at the place of captivity. And often, the prophecy that God gives is a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Often, what God gives is a prophetic word that is totally opposite 
to the experience that God's people are having at that time. And that's why often the word just seems to come out of the mouth of the prophet, seems to come out of the mouth of the prophet and drop. Because there's no one to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying through Jeremiah. But people didn't have ears to hear because they were dominated by what they were experiencing, what they were seeing, and they're saying, shut up, Jeremiah. You're talking about restoration. Open your eyes. But not everybody uh, forgot the word of Jeremiah. If you've ever read Daniel, you'll know that Daniel, who was prospering in Babylon, he was prospering in Babylon, but he was sticking to the word of God, he was reading the scriptures, and remember, it wasn't like they all had little mini Bibles that were walking around with. He must have gone to the scrolls night after night, Daniel, to read the Word of God, to try and find out, could this situation in there that they were facing be turned around? Could there be some change in Britain, some change in Europe? Could there be a word that he could seize and begin to intercede? And when he read Jeremiah, he found the passage where Jeremiah said that in 70 years, I'll restore my people. And when you read Daniel, you'll find that Daniel begins to pray. Three weeks, he prays, he fasts, he takes the word. It's the opposite. He didn't have to fast. He didn't have to pray. He didn't have to take that word. Daniel was doing all right. I mean, God was with him. He was richer in Babylon than he could ever have been in, in Israel. He, he was more powerful in the world sense of the world word in Babylon than he could ever have been in Israel. I mean, little old Judah, it wasn't even Israel, because the northern kingdom of Israel had been lost many years before. It was a little tiny Judah, and now Daniel, he's basically at times acting in the place of the leader of the greatest empire in the world. He had money. He had success. He had favor with God. He had favor with man. And yet he still understood that though he was more powerful and more prosperous than he could ever be in Israel, he was in Babylon. Some Christians are prospering in Babylon. And, and they're happy about it. And Unlike Daniel and unlike Moses, Moses prospered in Egypt. You know, you can take the book of Israel, Ezra, I was thinking about this last night. You can take the book of Ezra and the restoration of Ezra and you can parallel it with the uh, bringing out of, of Israel as a nation from Egypt. You see, you see, these guys leave. And when they left Egypt, they came with great wealth. When God brought them out of Babylon, he, came, he, brought, them without, he brought them out with great wealth as I just read. When you come out of Babylon, friends, when you come out of Egypt and the Egyptian system and the Babylonian system, when you come out, you don't come out empty-handed. When you come out of Babylon, God will bring resources with you to bring forth what he's promised you to do. Amen? But if you stay in Babylon you will become addicted to the system of Babylon, the way they do things in Babylon, the way they do things in Egypt. But in order to be resourced, you have to come out from among them. I mean, Babylon is, 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 is a great word in the book of Revelation, isn't it? So Babylon is not just for this time. The, the last book in the Bible speaks about the whore of Babylon. 
and says, Come out from among her, my people, and be holy. It's talking about a spiritual Babylon. So when we're looking at coming out of natural Babylon here in Ezra, it is a picture of coming out of spiritual. And the church today in Europe is in Babylonian captivity. Babylonian captivity. And many of them, are, and those that are prospering, don't want to come out of Babylonian captivity. I tell you what, most Christians that are, that are in positions, of Daniel positions, in Europe today, are already captured by Babylon. You say, no, they're not. They're, doing their, they're not doing their job. They're not doing their job. There are Christian businessmen who are not doing their job. They're not putting the money where the revival is. They've sold out to the devil. But nobody's going to tell them that because they've got money. They're, they're, you say the Christian politicians are doing their job. I'm speaking generally now, not specifically. They're not doing their job. They're not doing their job. Many of them have sold out to the Babylonian system. They're trying to, they're trying to work the gospel through Babylon. Oh, Jesus. Come out from among them. Come out from among them. Many ministers, you say, oh, there's many great ministers, many great leaders in, in Europe. There's not many great leaders in Europe. Why? Because they're in Babylonian captivity. They're playing with the system. They're ministering with the system, alongside the system. They've not come out of Babylon. They have accommodated Babylon. They have accommodated Babylon. There is no accommodation for Babylon. Come out of Babylon. And uh, Daniel was in Babylon. He never accommodated Babylon. He should, I mean, Daniel should have died many times. I mean, Daniel should have been destroyed many times. And he was prepared to be destroyed. And so his friends, you know the story of the men in the fire? They were all great men in Babylon, but they refused to accommodate Babylon. When it came down to God's truth, they would not be removed. And when they were going to be thrown into the fire, they refused to bow down to the statue of Babylon, the ways of Babylon, the thoughts of Babylon. They refused to do it. And they said, well, we'll throw you in the fire. They said, you can throw us in the fire, but God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't deliver us, we will not bow down to your God. They were in Babylon, but they were out of Babylon. And Moses was the same. Hebrews tells us he refused the riches of Egypt to walk in contempt with the people of Israel. I mean, that man Moses had everything. I mean, he, he was up there at the top with Pharaoh. He could have had a great life. But he refused. He'd rather have the reproach of leaving Egypt. And so the word was there. But Daniel took the word and he said, look at this. And he didn't just leave it. But he took the prophetic word from Jeremiah, and for three weeks he prayed it. And he'd have prayed it for four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever it took, until it came to pass. Because he understood that the word of the Lord must be released prophetically and in intercession. Elijah had the word of the Lord. At your word, Elijah, I'll shut up the heavens and the rains. At your word, I'll release the rains. But when he knew it was time for the rains, what did he do? He got down and he began to pray until that cloud as a fist came. So the word of the Lord of Jeremiah here in verse 1 might be fulfilled. 
Daniel was praying. And Daniel's prayers and this word began to affect the environment that the Jews were living in. Not just the environment, but listen to this. The Lord stirred up the spirit. Say, stirred up the spirit. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. You've got to step back and think about that for a while. I mean, I mean, that would be like the Lord stirring up the president or whoever it is of Egypt. I mean, Cyrus was not a believer, believe me, he was not a believer. But God was in control. For 70 years, they're in Babylon. But someone began to believe the words of the prophet, and God began to move. You know, the, 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 the Lord turns the heart of the king whichever way he wants. Whichever way he wants. Don't believe the lie of free will. Because human beings aren't free. They're in bondage to sin. But God is God, and God can do what he likes, when he likes, through whom he likes, whether they like it or not. God doesn't have to ask your permission, Cyrus, for you to do what he wants you to do. He doesn't have to ask, oh, excuse me, Cyrus, I, I can't violate your free will, so I'm going to ask you, would you help me? No, God just comes in, and Cyrus does exactly what God wants him to do, and Cyrus doesn't even know about it. That's the God that we serve. Nothing is too difficult for him. Even when you're in Babylonian captivity, God knows the end from the beginning. God wasn't sitting there going, oh, oh I'm worried. Because I, I was hoping they'd be out in 70 years, but I don't know if they're going to let them go. What, what, what if they choose not to? Nobody can resist the things of God, ultimately. And so he stirs up the king of Cyrus at the right time. He works in his heart the works of God. It is incredible how God can work behind the scenes. It's a mystery. Because we are all responsible for our actions before God. The Bible makes that plain. You are responsible for your actions before God. The Bible makes that plain. But at the same time, God works his work mysteriously through whomever he wants, whether they realize it or not. I mean, how could he use Pharaoh, who hardened his heart to God, and Pharaoh was responsible for his hardness of heart, yet God used it to bring about the very thing that he wanted. I mean, the greatest, most wicked act that ever took place was the crucifixion of the Son of God, and yet it was God's plan all along. The most wicked, evil act of humanity to crucify the Son of God was God's plan all along. I mean, the devil thought, the devil was laughing when he saw Jesus nailed to the cross. And the Pharisees were mocking. He saved others, let him save himself. And, and Pilate and Herod and all those that, humanly speaking, nailed him to the cross were laughing at him. But guess who laughed last? On the day of resurrection, the angels were laughing. On the day of resurrection, the believers were laughing. God was laughing. And the devil was weeping. 
because the very thing the devil thought that he was doing to destroy God was the very, very thing that was going to be the greatest triumph of God. God can work mysteriously. You say, why are you telling me this? You have to believe it. Because if you don't understand that God is in control of everything all of the time, and even when it all looks bad, wicked, terrible, He's still in control. If you don't believe that, how are you going to take a word like Jeremiah gave? How are you going to believe that God can do it? There's a prophecy over this house, Kensington Temple, that the glory of the latter house will be greater than that of the former. God's going to do it. We're going to be part of it if we're ready to hear the call. So he stirs up the spirit. And all of a sudden, the culture and environment changes. Now, you don't sit and wait for the culture environment to change. Daniel didn't sit and wait for the culture environment to change. Daniel prayed and believed and used his influence. He didn't just wait and sit. But the culture is going to change. And there's going to be a call for God's people to come out of Babylon. And we see that. We've got him saying, go to Jerusalem. Now, Cyrus said this. He said, right. Go home and build a house for the Lord. But the strange thing is, as I've already said, very few people did. It's a little bit like Jesus saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And very few people did. Very few Christians did. And so the amazing thing is, is we have a vision, a mandate for God's people. And very few people rose to the mandate. I mean, in your natural mind, you think, yay, we're all going home. We're going back to Israel. But this was the attitude. I'm not going back there. Why? I'm doing really well here. It's been 70 years. We've put down roots here. I've even married a beautiful Babylonian girl. We've got little Babylonian kids. It's all going well. I've set up my business. I've got nothing back in Jerusalem. I don't even have my house back there. I've got nothing in Judah. But, you know, 70 years is a long time. And we've started to get our community together. And thank God the favor is on us. Esther did her job and the Jews are held in high esteem. Things are good. We, we can be Jews in a foreign land. We, we, can, we can synagogue together. We can be together. I don't want to go back there because there's nothing appealing in Jerusalem for me to return to. Why would I leave my comfort, my stability, everything that's working for me, why would I leave to go back to a place of desolation, poverty, and ruin. And if you read the book of Haggai, you know that they did suffer, those ones that went back there. They suffered disappointment, discouragement, as we'll see later. They, they, they were not wealthy to begin with. And that's why they stopped giving to the building of the temple, because they were suffering. They were, they were trying hard to survive. They, had, they hadn't got homes to live in. And they, and they were trying to build their homes and build the... And, and it was like, it, at times, it, it looked like the worst decision in the world was to return. So the majority of Jewish people did not return from Babylonian captivity. They remained there. They were still Jews, but they remained there. But look, 
we see in verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord. That's twice now, isn't it? You think, ah, the Old Testament. You don't hear much of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Well, we're reading the first chapter of Ezra, the restoration of Israel from Babylon, and already we've seen that the reason that they came back in the first time, first place, was a work of the Spirit. It was the work of a spirit in a non-Christian. How many of you know God can work in non-Christians? It was the work of a spirit in Cyrus, but it was also the work of the spirit in the remnant, in certain individuals in Babylon. It was the spirit. I'm telling you, God is at work in Europe. Europe's under judgment. I can't, I can't understand these Christians that say, oh, God is not a God of judgment. Really? Well, go and visit all the churches across Europe, and you will find in the majority of cases, hundreds of thousands, millions of people in a city, and tiny churches fighting amongst themselves, with massive great exceptions. But you hear what I'm telling you? If you, you know, thank God for the move of God in London and the great churches in Britain, but that, that's a tiny drop in the ocean of British humanity. I mean, you can go for miles and miles and miles and hundreds of miles, spiritually speaking, and find no believing Christians, all right? But the Spirit was working. And I believe that although Europe is under judgment because God has given Europe over to its own sin, I was mentioning at the five o'clock, how does God judge people? How does God judge a nation? Does he send hurricanes? Are we sitting back going, oh, well, God's judging America again. Sent another hurricane. Is that how God judges? Not really. I mean, in a fallen world, how many of you know we're in a fallen world? How many of you know this isn't the world that God created? He created it good. It's fallen. And because the world is fallen, in the, prin in the principle of a fallen world, there works judgment. You hear? The very fact that the world is fallen means judgment is entwined in the world. So even we still die, don't we? Until Jesus returns. So, you, so earthquakes, whatever, they're not, God does not judge by throwing a lightning bolt at someone. The world is affected by God's judgment because the world is fallen and by its very nature will reap judgment. But how does God actively judge nations? Well, Romans chapter 1 and 2 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Well, what does God do about it? Well, having said that and explained the, God, the ungodliness, God judges three times, it says, God gave them over to their own sin. What does he do? He just steps back and says, that's the way you want it? You can have it. And I'll no longer restrain you. Thank God for common grace. Special grace is God's saving grace when he saves you. Common grace is the fact that this world is not as bad as it could be. That, there's, that God still seasons the world with goodness. Thank God for good government. Thank God for all the good people that are, that are outside the church. You know what I mean? God. But when God judges a nation, 
what he does is he takes his restraining hands off. He takes his, and he just says, all right, you don't want me? I'm not even going to fight you to have me. And then what takes place is the unregenerate nature, the, the flesh nature, begins to take its course without any restraint from God. How did Pharaoh harden his heart? Did God get into Pharaoh's heart and make him angry? No. He just took his hand off his heart, let his heart do the rest without God restraining. I remember when I went to university, I wasn't saved. God had begun to work in my life, but I wasn't saved. But I had an awareness of God. And uh, I remember in the first term, uh, I, you know, before I got saved, I, wanted, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. You know what I'm saying? And I had all these plans of sin and stuff like that and carnality in the flesh. And every time I wanted to do something sinful, it seemed like something was stopping me. Every time. Everybody else seemed to be doing what they wanted. But whenever I was trying to break the boundaries into new levels of sin, something would stop. Something would block. And even though I wasn't saved... I figured it out who it was. <laughs> I remember the night that I cried out to God and told him, leave me alone. I remember that moment in my room. At college, leave me alone. Because he was resisting. He was preventing. He was restraining. He was interfering. Now I know then he was trying to protect me. It was his grace. And you know what? There was a pause. And it was quiet. I, I didn't hear anything, but I felt a withdrawal. And I thought, I was a bit disturbed by it. I felt a withdrawal. I was a bit disturbed by it, but I thought, good. But I was disturbed. There was a, there was a residual disturbance, but, I, but my, mind, my flesh said, good. And then the results of God taking his hand off me, although he didn't, I'm still here today, thank God, you know what I'm saying? But that experience of saying, okay, that's what you want. My judgment was that he gave me what I, what I wanted. So that's what you want. And the experiences that I had during that period till I got saved, I'm still dealing with the fruit of them today. Seriously. So that's how God judges he doesn't have to make us. He just takes his hand off. He just withdraws. And then we become fleshly. We become lack of God conscious. And God has, in many ways, given Europe over to its godliness. And the Jews in Babylon had become Babylonian. But God, thank God, God always leaves a remnant. But that remnant is not meant to be a small remnant forever. God uses the remnant to bring restoration. And God, in those days, began to stir. He began to stir non-Christians. He began to stir key individuals, the movers and shakers. He began to work in them, even though they didn't know that he was working. So God, I believe that God is working in Europe behind the scenes in ways that we could never imagine. I believe. But I also believe that God is on the move. And we're believing that we're in a new move. And it's not just that God is moving. God is moving you. 
God is moving me. It's a move. The first thing before any of this, and this is physical restoration, could take place. Before any of that, there had to be a spiritual movement. Before there was a physical movement of caravans and people and families from Babylon down to Judah, there had to be a spirit movement. It says God stirred, moved the spirit of Cyrus. And then God came on people and stirred and moved their heart. To do what? To rebuild the house of the Lord. God in these days is looking to stir our hearts. To take us on a journey into a spiritual dimension that many of us has never been in before. Not everybody... That, in, that, that came back from Babylon had left, sorry, not everybody that came back from Babylon had been in Israel before they went to Babylon. You know what I'm saying? We know that when we see the temple built, all the ones that had never been, all the ones that were born in Babylon were like, yes! And all the ones that had seen the temple before Babylon were like, oh God. And we'll see the weeping and the crying were mixed together. And it's a beautiful mix. A beautiful mix. And we'll come to that. So some people, God was stirring their hearts to go on a journey to a place in God that they'd only ever heard about. They'd heard the stories of the old days. The old temple. The old sacrifices. They'd heard the stories, but they'd never been there themselves. All they'd known is Babylon. Be careful. I speak to myself too. That the church experience that we may have had, and the culture of church, generally speaking in Europe, could be a culture of Babylon. I recommend you to perhaps think about buying my book on Revivals through the ages. It's only three pounds. Because when you look at that book on revivals through the ages, it takes you back to environments that some of us, well, have never known. A place in God that we've never known. But why should we not know it? Why should we, why should we say our experience in Babylon, in Britain, the church in Britain, the church in Europe. Why, why should we say this is the way it's always going to be? Luther, when he looked at the Babylonian captivity of the church, he didn't just say, well, that's the way it is in Europe. He turned Europe upside down with the gospel message, the just shall live by faith. So let us be stirred. God wants to show us a land of restoration. God wants to use us in restoring not just individual people's lives to the Lord, but he wants us to restore the altar of God in Great Britain and Europe. He wants us to restore the temple. He wants us to restore the people of God in the great continent of Europe. And so the next thing I want you to look at is verse 7. Cyrus the king, and it leads on from what I've been saying, Cyrus the king brought out the vessels of the house that the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away. The old vessels. The old ways. They looked like they were gone forever. I mean, when, when those, old, those old men as they were now that were coming back to Jerusalem, 
And the priests, when they saw Nebuchadnezzar's men going into the Holy of Holies and taking all the gold and silver, the gold and silver that had uh, been there since David's and Solomon's time, and taking all the gold and silver, and March, you'd have thought you'd never have seen that gold and silver again, would you? Never in a million years would those priests think that they, the older ones that survived 70 years, or their offspring, would ever pick up those utensils, those bowls again, and serve in the temple of God. But Cyrus brought out the old things. We need to go back to the old things. The old, as, as J.C. Ryle in his amazing book called The Old Paths. The old paths of the Spirit and the Word trodden by saints for centuries. Faithfulness to the revealed Word of God. Faithfulness to God's truths. Being shaped by God's truths instead of shaping God's truths to what we'd like them to be. The old paths of the Spirit. The old paths of prayer. The old pilgrim paths. There, there is a pilgrim path that God wants us to follow. And it's not the new ways, it's the old ways. It's the, it's the well-trodden paths of prayer, devotion, holiness, love, sacrifice, and spirit. And they brought out the old utensils for the new beginning. That's why I wrote that book on revival, to help us realize that in every revival there are themes. And those themes are biblical themes. They're the old trodden paths of the saints. Don't you want to walk in the footsteps of people like Wesley and Whitfield? Well, maybe not their footsteps. I think one of the problems when we, t when we talk about revivals is that we all focus on the great man or woman of God, don't we? And, and that can cause pride. Oh, I'm going to be a Wesley. I'm going to be a Whitfield. Uh, I'm going to be a Spurgeon. Um, I'm going to be a William Booth. I actually think that is not helpful at times. Well, how about I'm going to be one that walked with William Booth, one that walked with Spurgeon. Instead of us wanting to be the, be the and I love Roberts' books, and he's coming in a few months, so I'm not speaking against his books, I love his books, but instead of us wanting to be the general, how about just being one of the followers? <laughs> how about having the spirit of the followers? I mean, it wasn't just William, William Booth was nobody without those that rose up with the blood and fire banner. The unsung, I mean, when you look at the, the Salvation Army under Will, I mean, they were firebrands. They were, I want to be one of them. Let, let's not all, you know, there's too many chiefs and not enough Indians in the charismatic body of Christ. No one wants to be an Indian. No one wants to be a foot soldier. We all want to be the chief. We all want to be the general, especially if we've got a label pastor over us. Well, we have to die to all those things. Yet the old things were coming out. The old things, but not the old things for the old ways. I'll tell you what, the old ways weren't that good. Remember, they were taken away from Babylon. That was judgment. That was judgment. They were coming out of judgment. I believe God wants the remnant church of Europe to come out of judgment. 
I know you're not judged individually, you're saved. But we're in an atmosphere of judgment. Europe is being judged by the Lord. But God wants his people to come out, not only of Babylonian ways, but out of judgment and turn the tables on the devil and bring blessing and grace to the city. Don't you love grace for the city? You know, that, that was birthed many years ago. That's not something new that Colin's thought of. Colin has been consistent in the call of God for his life and this church and this nation from the moment he took the senior ministership in 1991. I was his first staff member that he brought on as a young helper in the Bible school. So I've been there and I've seen it. And although we've changed ways of doing things as the Spirit has shown us, the principles have remain, remained the same. And do not forget that it was David Youngie Cho in a meeting in Wembley Conference Center, after that meeting, that prophesied over our senior minister that he would bring revival to London and Europe. Do not forget that. I believe that he will in his lifetime or in the lifetimes to come. That the, 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 the day will set, will, the, 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 whether it be him or his vision that God gave him. I believe. That's why I'm still here. So I haven't gone to be a general somewhere else. <laughs> because I believe that one day it shall be said that the senior minister of this church did bring revival to Europe. Whether he sees it with his eyes, I hope he does. Or not, I believe in that. This, is, this, this vision that we've been enjoying and, and, and being inputted for the last five days, this isn't just what we do at KT. This vision, although it will mature and grow and all that lot, is for the generations to come. That's what we have to believe, that we are the pioneers. When they went back to uh, rebuild the altar and the temple, they weren't just doing it for their generation. They were doing it for all the generations to come. What we're doing is we're pioneering the vision of God in this house, playing our part with other churches that God has given visions to. You know, thank God for Holy Trinity Brompton and the Alpha Course. Thank God for what that's doing in our nation. My father got saved through it. He was, uh, he was hardened to the gospel. But the Alpha Course reached out and changed his life. That's a flow of God. That's a, so I'm not just talking about us. I'm recognizing God is raising up in many areas. That's okay, so I just want to say that. But I'm talking about us today. The old things for, for the new ways. That's why we guard doctrine in this church. That's why Colin asks me to, to teach on eternal hell at the five o'clock service. The most unpopular doctrine in Christianity today. And so, here they are. They've got the vessels and they go out with gold. It's almost like, they must be thinking, this is like coming out of Egypt. And then we have chapter 2. Now, I'm not going to read chapter 2, but look at it. Look at all those names. Look at, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm lying in my bed with my earphones on. Don't want to disturb my wife. God told me to listen to Ezra, um, not her, so didn't want to put it on like loud, you know. Might not have been blessed. So I'm listening to it, and then we, and I'm thinking, wow, and then we get to chapter two, and there's a name, and there's a name, and a name, 
and a name. I'm like, how long does this chapter go on for? But I'm just listening name after name after name. And, I've, and in the past, I've always sort of joked about the names in the Old Testament. I have. And, you know, it, when I've read, done my daily Bible reading, you know when you get to the names and the tribes and all that lot? I just skip over them. <laughs> I'm not going to suddenly hit a name and go, oh, my God. You know, I'm not going to do that. And, and, and it's not like I'm having another child and I have to look for names. I just, all right, one of these big genealogies. Skip. Whew. I read three chapters in two seconds. <laughs> but I couldn't do that because I was listening to me on my iPhone. So I'm listening to name after name, and not just the name, but the, the families and the numbers that they brought back. And God starts speaking to me, and I'm thinking, these are real people. I know they are, but no, these are really real people. These are the ones that stirred and responded and God put their names in a book. And I thought, the doctrine of honor and reward. And I realized that they are in heaven now, but I heard their name on Friday night. My God. Can you imagine coming out in those days, all the things that you were going to struggle with, all the things that you were going to face, but you didn't know Way, 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 thousands of years back, you didn't know that on Friday night, some little minister in London would be hearing your name. Hearing your name. Sit back and think about that for a while. Hearing your, that over the thousands of years, their names have been read and reread. And read and spoken and read and read, 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 read. They didn't know that. What an honor. What an honor that God would put your name in his book. Do you know there is a book of life? Now, sometimes the book of life can, can, can be used in the sense of who's going to heaven. It can be. But at other times, the book of life, you see the Greek cities would have a book of life. And that book of life was really all the people that did something either powerfully in battle or politics or the arts, their name would be written in the book of life. And it was like a registry thing so that they would be remembered in that city for the services that they have done. So when we think about the book of life in the Bible, it can mean two things. It can mean, yes, those that go to heaven, but it, it can also mean those that God has honored. This is talking, the whole of, well, nearly the whole of chapter 2 is, is just telling us the New Testament doctrine of rewards. You know, if you say, well, what's the New Testament doctrine of rewards? I won't go into it in detail today. Just read 1 Corinthians 3. It speaks about the foundation of Jesus Christ and then those that build on top with straw and hay. In other words, they don't do anything for God. They stayed in Babylon, Babylonians. They were saved, but they were Babylonians. When the day of judgment came, not that, then what happened is their whole life was burnt up as useless, but they were saved as through fire. But then, in 1 Corinthians 3, it speaks about someone who, who deals with precious gold and silver and stones. In other words, this is a disciple. This is somebody who's God, who responded to the spirit stirring of the heart and came out of Babylon. 
And it says they will receive a reward. There's a doctrine of rewards. So all these names. And God is challenging us and saying, I'm stirring up your spirit to new levels. To, new, to a new dimension, to a new way of living. Because many of us, we've still got so much Babylon to come out of us. We, we, you can get into a situation where you, where you actually think, especially if you look at some other Christians or other churches and perceive, oh, they're not like us. Oh, we're Kensington Temple. We're Pentecostal. We're Ken Kensington Temple. We do cells. We're Kensington Temple. We believe in the Spirit. We're Kensington Temple. We're Kensington Temple. Well, oh, nice. We've got a reputation. One of the most dangerous things you can have in the Bible is a reputation. Isn't Revelation? It says you have a reputation. But where are you now? And we're not to judge ourselves by those that are further in Babylon than us. But we're to look into the Word of God and together we're to make a pilgrim's journey into a totally different dimension of discipleship and living that we've never experienced before. We cannot go, so, we cannot go halfway out of Babylon. We, we have to ask the Holy Spirit, and I believe this is what he's doing in these seasons. It's not an act of man. He does the stirring. I believe God is wanting to show us a different way of being. I believe God wants to take us to a place where we'll look back to these days and we'll think, oh, we've come so far from there. And, and, and the names. And then in verse 62, and then I'll, I think I'll bring it to a close for ministry. Verse, well, verse 59, it speaks about a bunch of people and they could not prove their father's houses or their descent. In verse 62, they sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies. But they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told... So, what is the situation here? The one thing you know about Ezra is that there's no gray areas. There's no gray areas. You're either leaving Babylon or you're staying. You're not, you can't go. You're going or you're staying. You're either believing the word of the prophet, you're either linking with the past destiny of the house in order to bring the new destiny of the house, or forget it. And sometimes, and I feel I, I, have, a, I, feel I have something to say about this, having been here 21 years, I was here when Rin Lewis was the senior minister, do you know that? I came into Bible school in October, and Wynne was the senior minister, and when Bible school finished in July, August, Colin was the senior minister. So I, I managed to, to get through both. And I've had hands laid on me, not only by Wynne Lewis, but I've also had hands laid on me by, um, who were you talking about earlier? I forgot his name. Eldon Corsi. I've had, I've had him lay hands on me and release the blessing. In fact, when, when it was ordination time, as soon as, as soon as Colin laid on my hands, I took it. This is 1997. As soon as Wynne lays on his hands, I took it. As soon as Eldon laid on his hands, I took it. Didn't take every hand that was laid on me that night. But I took those, I took it. Took it. Not because I was thinking I was going to be anything. I thought, I want the house anointing. 
I want the house anointed. And sometimes I've witnessed, and have it, I can even witness today, people that come into the house and want to change the spiritual culture of the house into a different culture. They come in and say, oh, we need to be more like this church. We need to be more like that move. We need to be more, we need to do it this way. We need to do it that way. We need to, and they're looking out at other moves, praise the Lord for other moves, or other churches, or other apostles, or other preachers, and they come into our house, and I, I love other preachers, by the way. Uh, you know that, that our house's door is open to every apostolic move. How many apostles would go over to Bogota year after year to sit at the feet of a vision because he believed God was in it? Apostles don't normally do that. Unfortunately, most apostles are a bit blinkered. Their strength is their weakness. So I'm not saying we're not open to... But people want to come in and they want to change the culture. They, 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 don't, they, they haven't connected to the past, to the history of the house. I'll tell you one thing about Christian, he has. He's a son of the house sitting there. I'm a son of the house. He's, he, he understands the past. And he's connected to it for the future. It's important to understand who we are. It's important to understand where we've come. It's important to hear the prophecy spoken over us by Canon James 1, that in order for Kensington Temple to become what Kensington Temple should become, it must endeavor to become the greatest disciple-making church in London. It's important to hear the prophecy that, that the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. If you've, not, if you've not connected to the former, how can you understand the glory of the latter it's important to know the prophecy of the elder in that eldership meeting during the days of Wynne Lewis where he said, I see the people coming through those doors in Kensington Temple and as they come through the doors in Kensington Temple written on their foreheads are hearers of the word. But then I see them leaving Kensington Temple through those same doors and on their foreheads are doers of the word. You see, nothing's changed. The vision is developed, but the anointing and the call of God upon us in this house has not changed. It, it was there when it was first called Kensington Temple by George Jeffries. It was there. It's the flow. And so sometimes people come in and, they, and they've got no history. I didn't have a history when I came here. I'm not talking. But are they, they're not interested in the history. They come in and they say, right, well, this is how they do it. At Hillsongs, we're not Hillsongs. I'd be annoyed if someone went into Hillsongs and said to the pastor, well, this is how they do it at KT. Well, this is how they do it in this church. Well, this is how they do it. Well, go there. Because God has obviously put something in your heart to be under that house. You're in the wrong house. And so, whatever your church background, and I love Hillsongs. I've already said, I love, you get things. We sing Hillsongs songs. Hear what I'm saying. Hear what I'm not saying and hear what I am saying. But don't bring the past of other churches and try and change this church. Because we have a history and we have a present and we have a future. And it's all part of the package. So this picture, they sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found. They could not prove their father's houses or the descent, whether they belonged to Israel. In other words, when you come to KT, you don't have to get the history book straight away and read it, but you're going to get into a flow. And while you're with us, you're going to hear sermons like I'm speaking. Robert's 
understood the flow of, understands Robert Sled. He understands the flow of Kensington Temple past, present, and future. That's why he's one of us. And he's very good at articulating it because of his prophetic mantle. And you're going to hear, and you're going to learn, and you're going to grow, and you're going to understand. And, and then for us to flourish together, we have to have our descent. We, we need to understand where we're coming from spiritually, where we've been, what's always been treasured, what's been built, and new things will be built, and new things will come into the house, but not at the expense. You know, we are sitting in a church. I know we're going to, I don't know, I just feel the prophetic anointing on me. We'll still pray for everybody that needs, but I, I can't stop this. I feel the flow. And so I'm going to, pro, that's, this is prophetic. And so I want to get out and lay hands but, and pray. And we will, everybody who needs prayer tonight is going to get it. Uh, but I've got to flow. And, um, uh, you know, we are, we are, the church, the church is not just the people that are on the earth right now. I've forgotten, it's the church triumphant and the church militant. Have you ever heard? There are two theological phrases. The church militant, that's all the believers that are on in the world today, the church militant. And the church triumphant, those are all the believers that are in heaven. And you know, although there is a church militant and a church triumphant, there is one church. One church. And the church triumphant and the church militant, the church in heaven and the church on earth, is one church. And there are brothers and sisters in heaven that paid the price for the building that we're sitting in today. Way back in the 1860s. Over there in a congregational chapel in Kensington Temple when they were building uh, this area up. It used to be a pig farm around here. And in a prayer meeting at that church, one night they said, who will go and minister to the saints in the new houses of Notting Hill Gate? And the fire of God and the anointing of God came and stirred their hearts. And we have records of the reading that they wept. And an offering was, that was taken up that night that would amount to, I think it was seven or eight million in a night. I remember Jack Hewell Davis did some work on it. Seven or eight million in a night to build this building that was called Horbury Chapel. And you can see the little foundation stone on your way out, just, just by the door outside. Little foundation stone. And this, this, this was a, a pioneering apostle evangelistic church from the beginning. Our brothers and sisters in heaven in the 1800s paid for this church. And, and, and they had no idea what was going to happen in this church. No idea. But they have ownership of this vision as well as we. It's not just this. We have, the Bible says we have witnesses in heaven. I preached on that last week, didn't I? On, on so, such a great cloud of witnesses. And there are saints in heaven watching what's going on, going, do you know what? I was at that prayer meeting when we start, when we, I was there at the foundation, I was there. I'm part of you, I'm part of the flow. We called it Horbury Chapel, but it was the same Lord. It was the same vision. It's the past, it's the present, it's the future. It's, it's the glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the, temp, of, of the former. It's getting in the flow. Hallelujah. It's building on the generations before. It's respecting those African ladies who, in the time of Wynne Lewis and into the early years of Colin, 
used to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. They used to go down Portobello Market when they heard there was some witches doing some witchcraft. And they would pray and close down the covens. Glory to God. We remember some of those people. Some of us that were young. Some of us were privileged enough as young. I was privileged enough as a young man to take communion to an old, frail lady and a visitation, took a communion, sat down with her. This is the heritage of the day. Sat down with her, served her communion. She told me about the days of George Jeffries. She told me about the day that Smith Wigglesworth, and he came before, but the day she was there when Smith Wigglesworth ministered from this pulpit. And at the end, he got a healing line and he caused everybody to be in a line all the way around this church. And she said by the time he prayed for each one of them, and yes, he was punching them and being rough with them, it's true. <laughs> by the time he'd gone around this church, she said there wasn't a body that wasn't slain on the ground under the power of God. She's told me that George Jeffries, who, who preached from this platform, would lead worship. And during the worship, he would say, the master is here when the anointing came. And he would go out right into the middle where you're sitting, right in the middle there. And he would stand on a seat right in the middle in this church. And he would conduct everybody in worship right there. These things are precious. They're precious. They're precious. Because the greater glory is yet to come. And so this passage about they didn't know their heritage. They didn't, why didn't they? Why couldn't they? Um, it says in verse uh, 59, they could not prove their father's houses. Why? Because they didn't take care with the documents. They, they didn't take care about where they'd come from. So it was like, oh yeah, we're part of you. They turned up, oh, we're part of you. We're part of the restoration, really. Do you know where we've come from? Do you know the flow that we're part of? No, well then you're not of us. Don't bring the vision of another house into this house. We've got our vision, thank you very much. If this vision stirs your heart, join us. If another vision stirs your heart, join them. Amen. Amen. Father, we just receive an impartation. Let's stand together. You're going to receive an impartation. You know, this service was called an impartation service. And um, our senior minister has traveled. He's got denominational meetings Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Oh. That's right. Just let's let the Lord. The Lord is pouring out. Just right where you are. Open your hands. We're not going to be long, but we have, there's an impartation. And I don't know why God gave me Ezra on Friday night. It was the last thing I was expecting. Well, I do know now why. I'm beginning to see. And I haven't really been preaching so much as prophesying and doing a work in the Spirit over our lives. And I've felt, especially in the latter part, that as I was speaking, that which I've received in the house, because I tell you what, I am a son this house I am a son I've always I was a son of this house before I came and I'll tell you the story about that another time and I am just taking the flow it's not from me it's 
through me that I have received. And as I spoke, there is an impartation of the vision of the house to serve the vision of the man of God that has been given to us. There is an impartation of serving. I pray to God that I will be an example of serving the vision and the, and the appointed man. And I pray that upon our lives, an impartation of the vision of this house, past, present, and future comes upon us. That the stirring of the heart that took place in the remnant, that the move of God that has been prophesied that is already among us would increase. That God would do incredible works on the inside of us. Incredible works in our hearts, delivering us from Babylonian theology and Babylonian experience. That God release the stirring of your spirit. God release the stirring of your vision. God release the anointing that works on the inside. God impart the vision of the house the impartation of saints long gone the impartation the unbroken call and anointing upon this house and those that have come through this place oh impart impart the stirring of the spirit that will cause us to build you an altar that will cause us to come to the altar and next week, I'm going to be talking about the fact they came to the altar. They'd not seen blood sacrifice for 70 years. But the stirring of the Spirit brought them to the cross, brought them to the altar. And when the altar was restored in their hearts, the blood began to flow. Forgiveness began to flow. Power began to flow. Healing began to flow. Blood power. Christianity is a blood religion. God, pour out the power of the blood through the Spirit. The Spirit answers to the blood. Lord, Holy Spirit, impartation. Oh God, let the true sons and daughters of this house arise. Let the true sons and daughters of this house arise. And let the false sons and daughters depart. That the remnant to build the restoration should arise. That the remnant to build the restoration should arise on the journey led by the apostolic anointing in back into the promised land out of Babylon. Not just for our sakes, Lord, but for the sake of the city and the nation and Europe. Oh God, send forth your spirit upon this house in waves of restoring, healing, revelation. Cause your spirit to enter every dry bone. Cause us to live. Cause the bones to come together, the flesh to come upon us. And rise, Lord. Let the army of the Lord in Kensington Temple arise with one heart and one voice and one vision to play our part in the turning of Europe and the world 
to God. Oh, hallelujah. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come forward right now. We're going to sing that song, Arise. Arise. We're going to sing that song, Arise. If you need to go, you, you, we're going to sing this one song. If you need to go, that's fine. We're going to just seal it by singing, Arise. And we're going to arise. If you need prayer for anything, there's an apostolic anointing here. We've just tapped in afresh to something consciously. There's a healing anointing. There's a, there's a healing anointing. There's a blessing anointing. If you need prayer for any reason during this next song, then feel free to come forward and we will pray for you. In Jesus' name.